Hello and welcome to Sign Foreign Cut, a show where we talk about bleeding edge developer tools, communities, and people behind those tools and communities. My name is Darko, I'm your host today. And yeah, of course, please subscribe to our channel if you haven't already. With me today, I have Dave Werber. Dave, thank you so much for joining us. And yeah, please go ahead and introduce yourself. Thanks very much for having me. Happy to be here on the podcast, yeah. As you said, I'm Dave. People probably know me best for iOS Dev Weekly, which is a weekly newsletter that goes out every Friday with a roundup of the week's iOS development news and articles and libraries and code articles. That's what people probably know me best for. Okay, great. Yeah, that's true. And uh, what led you to starting uh, iOS uh, Weekly and uh, you know, what are your experiences so far with running it? I've been an iOS developer since the platform started, really. I wrote a couple of Mac applications before iOS came out. So I was familiar with the technologies, but then I kind of jumped onto that platform. And then a couple of years later, I was subscribed to something called Ruby Weekly, which is still going now. And it was a very similar style of newsletter. Previous to being a Mac developer, I was a Ruby developer. So I was happy to stay subscribed to that and still reading it regularly. And I really liked that format of just distilling down the week's information and I looked around for something similar on iOS and there wasn't anything and so I decided well I wonder if I can do that and before I knew it I was doing it and I remember thinking at the end of the putting the first issue together well that's done and then realizing I was going to have to do it all again the next week and I thought I was going to struggle to find stuff but turns out that was never a problem in fact there's always too much stuff and sure enough almost eight years later I'm still doing it every week. Yeah, no interest finding new news. <laughs> yeah, I understand. Especially the last couple of weeks, it has been extremely busy times in the iOS development yeah, world. Yeah, we are going to we are going to talk about it. Yeah, you mentioned Ruby Weekly. I mean, we launched them for it was like almost seven years ago. It was also like one of the you know first uh, media that spread the news around it, and uh, you know even today, still very vibrant. And uh, we heard that people are coming from Ruby Weekly to Sam for. Absolutely. Ruby Weekly and all of Peter's other newsletters are still extremely popular and very good quality. He does a great job. Yeah, yeah, yeah. True, true. Okay, and uh, would you call it a business? Yeah, absolutely. It didn't start that way, and I'm not sure it was ever my intention to turn it into a business, but it's absolutely a business now, yes. So the primary reason I started it was because I thought I could do a good job, which is always, I think, a good reason to start sure. something rather than purely to see it as something that could make money. But there was an element of self-promotion in starting it as well. And actually, I resisted sponsorship and turning it into something commercial for quite a while, or at least it felt like quite a while. It was only about 18 months. Mm -hmm. But I started getting approached by companies fairly quickly, interested whether they could place like a sponsored link in the newsletter. I said no for a little while because I didn't really want to do that. That wasn't why I started it. And then as time went on, I kind of got a little bit nervous that if I then started to take sponsorship, would people then think that that was the only reason I was doing it and they would unsubscribe. Actually, when I did start taking sponsorship and turn it into something that made money, the opposite was true. reached out to me saying, we're so glad that you're taking sponsorship now because that means this is going to continue and we would like it to continue. So that was, it was a very positive reaction to it. It's not my entire business, but it's part of my business. Yeah, Yeah. I'm subscribed to a couple of weeklies and uh, I kind of like seeing ads in those weeklies. Those are maybe very few places on the internet where I love 
you know, kind of thing. It's really important to make sure the ads are, first of all, good quality. So I have had situations where I've had to kind of turn advertisers away because it wasn't maybe a perfect fit for the newsletter or something like that. People are putting their trust in you to provide them with links that are of good quality, and that includes the sponsored link. So it's really important to me that they are very relevant to the audience and also good quality products and services too. Yeah, yeah, true. And uh, when we were preparing for the show a week or so ago, you also mentioned a website that you were running uh, for quite a while. The one that shut down recently? (laughs) that one. (laughs) Yeah, so it did shut down, but it was a happy reason that it shut down. So the website was called appreviewtimes.com. And back in the early days of the App Store, Review Times, uh, which is where you, if you put your application on the store, Apple take a look at your application. They don't look at the source code, but they run your application and they run it past some guidelines that they have. And they either approve or reject your application. And in the early days of the App Store, the queue before you got down to a reviewer could be quite long. And actually, more problematic than the length of the queue was the fact that that queue could vary wildly from week to week. So sometimes it would be like a week in the queue, and sometimes it would be three or four weeks in the queue. I mean, that was an extreme case. But if you're trying to plan, especially if you're working with clients, telling a client, well, yes, we've finished your application, (laughs) but nobody can download it until a month later, that doesn't go down very well. I started the website as a way to try and give developers a bit of insight into roughly what the queue length was at the time. And so I crowdsourced the information. I got people to tweet out their review times and hashtag either iOS or Mac review time. And then the website was very, very simple. It just collected that data, truncated kind of extreme values off the end, and then averaged the rest of the data to give times. And it worked very well for many years. But then in 2016, some changes internally at the App Store meant that, I guess, things got reprioritized and suddenly that queue went from a week or two down to a day or two. And it's been very consistent at around about a day for an app review since then. And so the website was really since 2016, but actually kind of late 2018, 2019, because there was so little data, kind of could skew that average really easily just with a couple of bad tweets and because people trusted that website so much and again it comes down to that same issue that i was talking about with ios dev weekly if you provide a service and people put their trust in that service it's really important for you to respect that trust and so i decided that rather than just let it kind of languish and give potentially bad data the best thing to do was just to shut it down a weeks ago yeah this was like an incident running for a couple of years. <laughs> there is a delay on the queue, and then it went below. And you know, <laughs> Apple are a very secretive company, of course. Everyone knows that. And so when the queue time did go down, nobody really knew, is this how it's going to be? <laughs> and so you don't want to shut it down straight away because is this just a fluke? Is this just something that's happening temporarily? But over time, it really did become clear that this is now, this is the new standard, a day, around about a day for review. It felt like an intentional change. It wasn't something that happened gradually over time. It, it fairly quickly dropped. So it felt like an intentional change. It feels that you got some, you know, additional free quality check. I mean, if it's a day, then it's okay. Thank you. You did that. If it's four weeks, then you please <laughs> let me live my life. Yeah. And again, if it's a day, as long as it's consistent at a day, you can plan for that day. So you can say, okay, well, we need to release on Monday next week. Let's submit it on Wednesday this week just to make sure that the review goes through okay. And that kind of level of planning gives you to schedule releases in good time. You yeah, know? predictability is a huge thing. Yeah, there. 
Predictability, absolutely, yeah. Okay, and uh, you mentioned just a couple of weeks uh, behind us, there is a developer conference that happened. Maybe you can uh, share your thoughts of what was released and what you are excited about. So it was a fantastic conference. It's always a good show, but this year felt like a really big year in terms of things that changed and the significance of those things as well. I mean, the big news, I know the audience for this podcast is not entirely iOS developers, so people may not have caught the big news, but effectively a couple of fundamental new technologies were introduced at the conference this year to set what I see as the direction for the next five to 10 years of iOS development. So we've been using on iOS something called UIKit so far, and UIKit isn't going away, it's still there. But a new technology was introduced uh, called SwiftUI, which sits kind of on top of UIKit, although the technical details of that are not quite as simple as that. Mm -hmm. And sometimes it doesn't sit on top of UIKit, but you can almost think of it as sitting on top of UIKit. And it's a declarative and reactive development framework rather than an imperative one quite a different change in the way that we work with building iOS apps. Well, it's not released for production yet. It's still in beta at the moment. It will be available to ship in probably September this year, which is normally when the new version of iOS comes out. But yeah, quite a big change in terms of iOS development. And very exciting to see how Apple see the next years of this platform going forward. Yeah, I saw a lot of news around the SwiftUI and uh, yeah, it seems that it's the next thing. I wanted to ask, so speaking a couple of weeks ago with Peter from PSPDF Kit, he mentioned something that was back then called Catalyst, which I, since I'm not in these waters uh, very much, was like news to me. But since Mm -hmm. then I I was following the news and I'm now recognizing, so it was renamed, I think, right, to the Catalyst, is it the name? Uh, yes, everyone had been referring to it as Marzipan, which was the allegedly internal code name mm-hmm. for it. I think it was fairly widely known that it was internally. In fact, they actually made a joke about that, a very subtle joke on, <laughs> on stage this year. I was kind of expecting them to mention it in some way, but they mentioned it in such a subtle way. In the session, uh, the conference session that was demonstrating Catalyst, they had a demo application up on the screen on the the slides behind. And one of the items, it was like a list of cakes and stuff. And one of the items in the list was marzipan, uh, which I thought was a very nice way just to acknowledge that everyone had been calling it marzipan for the last year. But yes, it's a technology to allow you to take an iPad application written with UIKit, which doesn't usually run on the Mac. There is no UIKit on the Mac, or at least mm-hmm. until now there hasn't been. And it allows you to create a Mac application out of that. And so to allow that to happen, they have basically brought all those UIKit frameworks across to the Mac, specifically for use by Catalyst applications. So you have this ability now to take an iPad app that you're shipping to the store and fairly simply, at least to get a basic version of it going, you can get a version of your iPad app working on the Mac fairly simply. And then, of course, the stage after that is to make it fit better with the Mac. So it will look a little bit like an iPad application running on a Mac to begin with, but they've introduced some additional APIs as well to help you make it fit better with the platform. So take advantage of menus, right-click and bars and things like that. Yeah. And uh, to rewind a bit, I still remember like Windows 3.11.95 and then, you know, struggle to get, you know, Linux and Unix, you know, a decent UI. I mean, UI is a difficult thing, you know, to pull through to be of high quality and detail and you need guidance there. And there hasn't been so far such a, at least not a successful technology to enable you to do that, right? 
to enable you to do kind of cross-platform. Yeah. 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 So this is cross-platform in the most Apple way possible. It's across all the platforms that Apple care about, which is the platforms. Catalyst brings together macOS and iOS, but actually SwiftUI is in a different way as well. Like you can write the same SwiftUI code or using the same framework for actually all of the Apple platforms, iOS, macOS, even TV, watch, and um, is that all of them? Oh, and then iPad OS is the, new, is, thing, is the yeah. new one. They, yeah, they split it slightly. It's always been a good pro with Apple's kind of default stock UI components. Uh, UI components that tend to be fairly attractive to look at. But if you go down that route of using their standard components, then you're going to have a much easier time when it comes to things like this, where your application needs to work on a different platform. They're going to make those components look more Mac-like on the Mac without much work. If you've gone down the completely custom UI route, then that's a position to make. There's pros and cons to both of those ways of doing things, but you're generally going to have an easier time if you stick with Apple's. Yeah, yeah, sure. Less work for you. <laughs> and yeah. It's covered from their side. Yeah, and uh, in the area of iPad, iPad OS, I mean, I think that a lot of people are very excited about it from the general public, from what I have seen. <laughs> Any thoughts on that? iPad OS is interesting. It feels like tvOS and watchOS and those other platforms, behind the scenes, they're all basically iOS. I believe even like the HomePod is running a version of iOS, although it's not a version that we can do anything with. There's no third-party applications for it. But they're all running iOS. But tvOS and watchOS were definitely like forks from iOS. Like they are adding features to those platforms that are not making it back into iOS. iPadOS, I think it's unclear at the moment how much of iPadOS is just a kind of marketing thing and how much of it is an actual technical thing. My gut feeling says that actually it's still very much the same code base underneath. I think that's a sensible way to do it because you don't want the two platforms going away from each other too much because they are so similar. They're both touchscreen devices. They're both effectively very roughly the same size of device. You know, obviously the phone is smaller than the iPad, but they're the same kind of size. You know, that you're going to be able to do very similar things with both of those devices. So it could just be that iPadOS is really just a marketing name on top of the same operating system. But what it does do, and I heard some people talking on a podcast the other day about this, it promotes the iPad in terms of the importance to Apple. At the moment, iOS is just this one big thing that covers both the phone and the uh, the iPad. And splitting it in terms of the marketing of it means that they can actually push iPad specific. And I hope that actually leads to the iPad becoming a more important platform to Apple because all platforms go through changes. But the iPad especially has been through a slightly troubled history in terms of what does the iPad actually do? Is it a machine for work? Is it a machine for media consumption? Is it a machine for... The truth is it's all of those things. But giving it that separate marketing name, if that's what it is, I think allows them to segment it slightly further away from the phone in terms of how they talk about the iPad, which I think is a good thing. Yeah, it seems like that they, as you said, opened the doors to ship different things to iPad, which they haven't been able to do before. Yeah, I was surprised a couple of years ago, so I'm kind of in the iterations of I buy iPad every couple of years, you know, in the meantime, you just don't look around. And I know that it was, you know, burst of, you know, various other, you know, tablets. Yeah. And I was surprised, maybe it was like at some point last year, I saw a Verge review video just said, so there is pretty much nothing else that's worth looking at except iPad. And with the Pro and uh, 
what you can really do with it, with, with the size. And, you know, I'm seeing architects in the coffee shops, you know, drawing on it and really using it as a tool. I wanted to ask what you, I think, already answered that, like, is it important for, you know, consumers to know that it's a different operating system? Like, is the name even, you know, does it matter really to the people, to the most of the customers? Yeah, I think so. Yeah. And the other point that is that now it's got a different marketing name, even for developers, even when talking about it in a developer context, that means that Apple are going to need to address iPad OS as a separate element inside their developer conference every year. You know, here's what we added to iOS. Here's what we added to iPad OS. So I would assume that what this means is that iPad is going to need features or improvements every single year, which, like I was saying, that kind of pushes that platform forward independently of iOS as a whole. I think that'll be a good thing. Yeah, we're coming from that from the very, you know, bottom-up side of like how they implemented that. Is it a feature flag or operating system? We'll never know how they actually <laughs> technically implemented it. It could be, I mean, I'm assuming that watchOS was for iOS. It could be that watchOS is actually still internally the same build. I struggle to see, but that would be a lot of feature flags, <laughs> right? From everything from the watch to the iPad. But who knows how to organize it internally? The marketing name for it, even the developer marketing name for it, is actually what's important. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I mean, from time to time, you know, I'm doing demos of like various features from Sapphire on YouTube, you know, on support and so on, talking with customers. And it's very important to have clear terms when you're communicating. So yeah. just from a communicational standpoint, it's nice to have this term now. So it's like easier to communicate. I mean, if obviously it's not the same thing as the, as the iOS app. What will be interesting now is if maybe next year do they rename iOS to iPhone OS because the only thing that runs iOS, like pure iOS now, is the iPhone, which I think will be lovely in a way because I think it's super clear. Like when the iPhone first came out, there was no iOS. It was iPhone OS to begin with. And so it would be a lovely return back to that. Yeah, exactly. So in some ways, I'm surprised they didn't do that this year. If you're going to have iPad OS... Why not have iPhone OS as well? I'm slightly disappointed they didn't. <laughs> yeah, I think they have good reasons. <laughs> so yeah, it was great exploring these topics. What are your plans for the next steps? Maybe with newsletter that you're running? And I think that I saw on your blog that you also recently started, is it like iOS jobs or? Yeah, yep. Yeah. So I have a couple of other projects that are ongoing at the moment. There's iOS Dev Jobs, which is a new site which I started just a few weeks back, just before the conference, actually. It was like maybe two weeks before the conference it launched, mm-hmm. which is a way for me to hopefully put people who are looking for iOS jobs directly in touch with the companies who are looking to hire people. And that's had a good launch so far. It's had over 60 jobs posted and almost 20,000 people kind of clicking through those links to go and see those jobs. So a successful launch. But launching a project like that is always tricky because you need both the people looking at the site and also the companies posting the jobs (laughs) on the site. And if either one of them isn't there, the whole thing work. So it's been a successful launch, but I don't know yet whether it will be a long-term success. But I'm very hopeful for that. I think it stands a good chance of being a long-term success. Certainly the feedback both from people looking for jobs and also from the companies who are hiring has been really positive so far. Then another project that I have running at the moment is one that's been going for a little while now, more than a year. I don't remember exactly when I launched it, but it's called the iOS Dev Directory, Mm -hmm. which is my attempt to kind of map and catalog the community a little bit. So that is a list of everyone I know who blogs about iOS 
development. And I think there's like 600 or so blogs on there now. I started that site for slightly selfish reasons. It's always difficult for me to keep up with the community. I like to read everything the community is writing so that I can pick what goes into the newsletter every week. And I thought, well, rather than me trying to find all these blogs, let people tell me about their blog and I'll publish that site containing a link to their blog and exports OPML mm -hmm. files, which you can bring into an RSS reader. And it allows me to keep a really good track of what's being published in the community. Yeah. All the tools that you mentioned, it's very nice. They're all taking care of one segment and it's something that people really, really need. I mean, when you mentioned directory, I thought that you were going to go in a different direction. So when we were beginning, I don't know, it was like 2008, nine. Working with Rails, you mentioned that you were a Ruby developer previous to becoming iOS developer, yeah. or iPadOS developer, we'll see. <laughs> uh, yeah. uh, there was a working with Rails director, which was a director of companies. Rails, yeah, yeah. I remember I it. I don't know if it's still alive. Yeah. <laughs> I haven't checked in a few years. It's not. Working with Rails is no longer active. I did go and check because I remember that site when I was a Ruby developer mm -hmm. as well. And I think one thing that was nice about that site is that you could kind of put up your own little page and say like where to find me, what I do. But then you could also, if I remember rightly, you could put up like what clients you'd work with and like what projects you had and stuff like that. So it was a directory in the same way as the iOS directory is, but you had slightly more control about what went into your listing. But I do have some ideas. I haven't yet decided whether to explore them or not, but I do have some ideas around taking the iOS dev directory forward a little bit because the site as it stands at the moment is a useful resource. If you want to find somebody's blog, it's on that mm -hmm. site. Like there's an enormous number of blogs on there, but there's not a lot of reason to actually go and visit that site because all it is is a list of blogs. So I'm considering whether to start actually pulling in links to some of the actual content and to make it somewhere where people can go to see not only the list of people who are talking about it, but maybe some of the posts. And of course, not actually importing their content or anything like that, but still just linking out to the site so that it's more of a destination for people to go to rather than just a list of people who are blogging. Sounds like a great feature to me. Because some of those sources of material, some of those blogs, you know, are less frequent or more frequent content. And then, yeah, from that perspective. Yeah. I mean, with working with Rails, there was some concept of testimonials, which I don't remember for what reason, but felt more trustworthy than if you just put something. So there was someone has to register there and kind of, you know, verify that was a nice thing. Okay. Okay. Yeah. So I would say we are old. <laughs> uh, most of the people, you know, starting with Rails now and all that probably don't remember that it was like almost 10 years ago or 10 years ago. Yeah. It's more than 10 years ago, yeah. It's probably more like 15 years since Rails was in the 0.something releases, which is when I started with it. I remember exactly what got me started with Rails. I was actually working at a .NET job at the time, and I was a little fed up with that technology anyway. And I saw the very, very famous video, the David Hanemeyer Hansen video, let's build mm -hmm. a blog, you know? And in some ways, that video changed my career because that got me interested in Rails. And not immediately, but ultimately that decision to get interested in Rails meant that I left that company I was working at and started my own business, um, started out doing Rails stuff. And so actually, it's all it all stems from there because I don't know whether you remember as well, but in that video that he did, the text editor that they used was TextMate. Mm -hmm. yes. And TextMate wasn't the only reason I bought a Mac, but it was one of the reasons I bought a Mac. And so maybe that five-minute let's build a blog with Rails video is the reason I am now an iOS developer. It's quite possible. Yeah. I was just, you know, 
getting out of the university and all that. And I remember also that component. Okay, so if he's so good and he's using those tools, I should be also using those tools. So it was like an <laughs> ultimate sales pitch. You also nicely described it. That Rails video was incredible. It's hard to remember back how web development was when that video came out. I have some sense. It was a different world. And looking at the speed at which he put that thing together and the way that Rails worked and the whole kind of convention over configuration and Ruby having the whole motto of the kind of happiness of the developer is more important than anything else was such a breath of fresh air. At the time, a .NET world was very much around web forms, which was not a particularly pleasant technology to work with. And obviously, .NET has come on leaps and bounds. There's some amazing .NET things happening now, but like how things were at that point, and that video really did influence, I think, a lot of people in terms of the way they were working with the web. Yeah. Yeah. I remember one of my impressions was, like, is this really possible? Can you do anything with it? Because there are so few lines of code, it means that it's like, you know, some templating thing which is very you know specific and of course that was ultimately the reason they eventually got rid of that scaffold line that doesn't exist in rails anymore because it is kind of inflexible and what he built was incredible yes. for a five minute video but of course building a real application you don't build a real application in five minutes but that doesn't mean that the technology wasn't good like it was also built on top of really solid stuff if i ever need to do any server-side stuff now rails is still absolutely my go-to choice for that yeah 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 there was like a burst of like node.js being very popular and go being very popular for the back end and all that but from developer perspective you know there is nothing even close to it for what i have seen <laughs> yeah I think, so I'm not a Node developer, I don't know much about Node, but I believe Node is extremely popular these days. In fact, I think it's very much taken over from Rails in terms of what people are actually using, but that doesn't mean Rails isn't yeah. still good. It certainly still has a, a place in my yeah. heart. I have to say that the new version of Sanford that we have launched six months ago, mm -hmm. uh, we are using Elixir and Phoenix for the view side. So we jumped that shape of like microservices and communicating. I hear great things about Elixir, actually. Yeah, yeah. I mean, when I started pronouncing words from the developer perspective, they were not even close. I mean, this is the closest that we have seen from the you know syntax side, but also from the whole developer experience, the tooling, the community, and all that around. Yeah. yeah. Okay. So it was a fantastic conversation. I hope you also enjoyed it. Thank you all so much for your time and I hope that in future when you, you know, start some new projects and you know we can hear how it's going. So maybe we'll have a chance again in the future to talk. Thank you very much for having me on. It's been an absolute Thank pleasure. You. Same. Thank you. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.